We are uh, crossing into chapter 2 of Second Peter. As we make that transition from um, oh, probably almost three weeks on understanding and talking about revelation, inspiration, and illumination, and I've only got one thought paper on that, and it was quite well done, but uh, the rest of you didn't give me the assignment, so I guess I, I, fa- I have to fail all of you. <clears throat> Uh, that's supposed to be a joke. Nobody's laughing, so I guess. But the the importance of the first verse of chapter two uh, sets up a contrast for it, and I think all the translations should have this. What's the first word of verse one? But. But. That's a strong adversative, so it's it's a it's a strong contrast. So the contrast is between the truth. <coughs> that the prophets shared under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he moved them along, superintended their work, with the false prophets that arose among them, and then, as Peter says, the false teachers among you. So let me read the verse. But false prophets also arose among the people. Now that would take us back to the context of the previous chapters, false prophets, or excuse me, the prophets in the Old Testament, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And among, while they are proclaiming truth, there are false prophets proclaiming error. And then he says, just as there are false teachers among you. So what would be a legitimate inference for us to draw from that? There are some people who know the word, but they're perverting it for, their own, for another purpose. Okay. That there are people who know the, know the gospel, but they're perverting it for another purpose. What other inference could we draw from that, from the, what Peter's doing here? So I wonder if it speaks to our own fallen nature that we are on constant, under constant temptation. Okay. And so, uh, both of those are, are accurate. Could we also draw even a much broader conclusion or inference that? Where truth is proclaimed and defended, there will always be False. error. And so Peter is sort of alerting them, his readers in the first century and us today, that as there were false prophets in the Old Testament and as there are false teachers arising in the New Testament, the church, should we expect false teachers in our era? I think that's an important uh inference for us to draw, um, and, and I certainly do not want to go down a bunny trail here of, of false teaching in our era, but that, that there is always false teaching. And as he is saying it, that's from among us. Look at the next phrase, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies? So it isn't, it isn't necessarily coming from the outside, it's coming from within. And that is what, that's by definition, that's what a heresy is. So it's taking, a heresy is taking something that's true and distorting and perverting and prostituting it into an error. And so that's a, that's very important for us to, and I want to talk a little bit about that, for us to always be alert to that. Could that also be the the incomplete teachings that that you talked about uh, in, in, in the past that were 
where the contemporary pastors are reluctant <laughs> to yeah to not teach the whole counsel of God, yeah. just a selected part of it. I think that's exactly and right. Another thing, Jim, when they when they use the word when when God presents that word to us through the scribes secretly, there's intent and knowledge, correct? Because it's secretly done with the knowledge that it is a perversion. Can't we get that? Uh, yeah, I think so. Secret I mean, there there's claim. a there's a conscious, uh, be the right way to put this, a conscious, de- deliberate, intentional um, action of perverting, of distorting. You know, you know what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, this isn't. Oh my! I didn't know that. It's not that. It's not. It's 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 very deliberate, uh, and so um, that I want to I want to illustrate that a little bit uh, when we're done with this, but. What I find so fascinating, and this is a very favorite passage of mine for, for, for this reason, what Peter is identifying here is the three, I just called them precepts. You could call them characteristics or whatever. But the three precepts of these false teachers are pretty much the common precepts of all false teaching. They, they are characterized by these three things. And the way Peter phrases them is, is, is important, and I want to really uh, discuss that. But I, again, I draw your attention. Secretly bring in destructive heresies. Heresy is an intentional distortion of truth. Destructive, that's what it will do. And as Fred correctly said, it's done, it's done secretly. There's a subtle, um, clandestine, uh, secretive nature to this. And so um, Peter says, you, you must be aware of this. And he says it has, they have three characteristics, three precepts. First of all, they deny the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves self-swift destruction. Let's take that phrase, master who bought them apart. Who's the master? It's Jesus, it's Christ, it's the Lord. But it's interesting that, that Peter chooses to, um, to focus on the master, Jesus Christ. He could have said, who deny Jesus, or deny Christ, or deny the Lord. But he chooses a term that we could probably correctly translate master. Whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they bow to him or not, he is the master. And then they, he adds, who bought them? The word bought them is really from the word we translate redeem. Redeem them. So it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating how Peter chooses to describe point number one or precept number one of their heresy. Now listen, I'm going to say something that I think is universally true. All heresies make the initial step of error by prostituting some teaching about who Jesus is. Almost always, in in some way, declaring something falsely about his nature. God-man? No, he's just a man. Uh, he really didn't die on the cross. That was just a story. 
or that's what the early church wanted to believe, or some, something like that. So what Peter is doing is he's, he's zeroing in on two aspects of a teaching about Jesus that if you deny them, you're in heresy. First is that he's the master, the Lord, the sovereign. And second, his work, which is a redemptive work. So it, it, they're denying both of them. They're denying the heart, the center, the vital center of who Jesus really is, the master who redeemed them. So what's the nature of their false teaching? We, we don't know. He doesn't tell us. I mean, I'm talking about the specifics. He says they're denying the master who bought them, the one who redeemed them, the one who provided a path of salvation for them. They're denying something about either his lordship or his redemptive work. That's heresy. There would be cases where, I'm asking this, would there be cases where they believed in God but denied Jesus? Sure, sure, absolutely. Or denying something about his nature or his work. I gave just an example, Woody. Uh, yeah, I believe in God. I'm not an atheist, but I don't, I don't believe Jesus is really fully God, fully man. He's just a great man. You know, that, okay, right there, you have just stepped from truth into heresy. To utter that sentence, you just stepped into heresy. Or that, I, I, this isn't, we don't exactly know, again, what the details or content of their teaching is. Uh, you know, I'm not really sure uh, we should look at his, his, his crucifixion as any, anything else than just the death of a great man who was martyred. What's wrong with that? I mean, it's, that's the little tiny kernel of truth. He was a great man. He was martyred. I mean, he died for something he believed. But that's not all that's going on on the cross. Do you know what I mean? You're, just, you're, you're, you're constructing a story that, or a, a teaching that's historically accurate, but you're only focusing on a tiny little, and that's all you're going to say. It's just, it just shows us how to live through tough times. Stand for what you believe. Who's our model for that? Jesus. I don't disagree with that, but if that's all you are going to teach about the cross, you know, you're just, you're comparing him to Buddha and Socrates and all these other teachers who died for what they believed. That's much more than that. And that's, that's heresy. Today, there are many people in, well, I, was, I won't say that, there are some leaders who teach that the resurrection is not an objective historical event. That's just what the church wanted to believe. It didn't really happen, but that's what they wanted to believe. So the, the corollary of that is he's still in the tomb. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, that's, that's heresy when it comes to the teaching of the scripture. We're not comfortable with even hearing you say it, even as an example. Well, good, good. I hope it makes you terribly uncomfortable. <laughs> but, I mean, that is, uh, I think I told you this. Uh, so maybe I didn't, but um, this goes back a ways, but uh, in, in know, maybe 15, 20, 18 years. But there was a pastor in, in a major denominational church in town on Easter Sunday morning who stood up and they sang all the traditional hymns about, associated with Easter. And he said, Oh, today we're here to celebrate 
the resurrection of Jesus in our hearts. I got a, a tape of it. It was when tapes were still used, you know, so it's how old it is. But it was really interesting because then he, he went through the typical theological liberal tune. He said, um, the, the tomb of Jesus Christ um, really isn't empty. Um, and the, there wasn't really a literal bodily resurrection. Uh, but that's what the early church wanted to believe. So that's what they began to teach. It didn't really happen that way. So what we're doing is we're celebrating today the resurrection of Jesus in our hearts. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful example of a teaching that should have an impact on how you choose to live your life. And you just listen to that drivel and you say, well, if what he's saying is true, that that's just what the early church wanted to believe, it really didn't happen, it's not an objective historical fact, then I would say to the people, just stop coming to this place. Don't write any checks to this place. Don't worship at this place. Uh, don't come and help us care for the building. We're going to shut it down. Because it doesn't matter. There is no resurrection. There is no salvation. We're following somebody who died. And everything he said when he was predicting he was going to, was a lie. So let's just shut it down. Write a check in your heart. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just I remember when I listened to that day, he's no longer there uh, at that church. He's back east somewhere, but... Uh, that was an interesting sermon to listen to. And I just, I got so upset and angry listening to that. And I remember one of my friends, and I shared it, and he says, I just can't believe that most of the people in that church didn't get up and walk out. But they didn't. Because most of them pretty much believed what he was saying. And there are many, not all, but there are many denominational churches at the top level of those denominations. That's what they believe, and that's what they teach in their seminaries. And so, as a writer said in 1921, and he published a book, people who teach that are no longer Christians. They should call themselves something else. But they're no longer Christians, you know, that teach that. And so what Peter is saying here is, false teachers are among you, secretly bringing in destructive heresies, denying the master who bought them. So the, the, the first... Uh, what would be the right way to say this? The first signal of error and heresy is always, what do you do with Jesus? How do you see and understand the person and work of Jesus Christ? That's the key. As everything rises and falls on that, doesn't it? I mean, you agree with that. Don't you? I mean, everything rises and falls on that issue. And so Peter is, and, and he's just nailing it. Uh, the primary precept of the false teachers, what do they do with Jesus? How do they talk about the person of Christ and how do they talk about the work of Christ? And so uh, that's why it, Peter does it appropriately, and obviously he's writing on the inspiration of the Spirit too, but really nailing, um, nailing that particular issue of false teaching. <clears throat> All right, any... I don't think... It's not hard to understand what he's doing or what I've said here the last couple of minutes, but... It is that, that's the central issue. If you depart from that, you've stepped outside of the historic biblical Christianity. Weren't there other men who said they were um, the Son of God and died? Or were there others other than Jesus? 
I'm yeah, do you mean uh, okay? How do you do you mean it throughout all of history, or do you mean at the time of Jesus, no, or what? throughout history? Oh yeah, oh sure. So how would somebody then justify? Why would we pick Jesus out then if he didn't really rise? Why would we just pick Jesus as the one? Well, I mean that's a that's a good question because even at the time of Christ, in that first oh, you know, couple of decades before and after, uh, there were a number of people who claimed to be the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And, and Luke even refers to to one of them in his Gospels. But yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Well, I think the answer to that is primarily because all of these other ones, nothing particularly happened to them, but a whole movement was built around this guy, Jesus. You know, I mean, an entire movement that becomes the church and mm-hmm. Christianity. Yeah, I mean, so that's it. And and the, the, the thesis of the book of Acts is that the reason... Christianity spread like wildfire was because of the people who saw and witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was that was an irrefutable, incontrovertible fact for them. They saw Jesus before he went to the cross. They saw him after they put him in the ground, walking around for forty days, teaching people. There are ten recorded instances of Jesus meeting people, one or two or whole groups, including whole five hundred, after his resurrection. And why do you think why do you think there are ten recorded instances of post resurrection experiences? It's what we call evidence. It's what is called evidence that this is an objective as a matter of fact, and this is not original thought with me. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most historically attested events coming out of the ancient world. Do you know what I mean by historically attested? There's enough of evidence for it. And I mean, it's just it. But you know, the problem is it's so supernatural, and people that have an anti-supernatural bias toward things are just going to say, "Well, I still I don't care what the evidence is. I still can't believe it." And and those people who pended weren't necessarily uh, Christians. All of them weren't necessarily Christians that witnessed that, were they, or were they not? I mean, uh, all of well, all of the ten recorded instances of post-resurrection experiences are in the scriptures and they are people that uh all i think i think every one of them would either were or would become like james's brother right it was it was the resurrection appearance of of jesus to his brother james that caused him to put his faith in i was referring to maybe secular people oh i see who may have recorded something that they saw in this man Well, there are there are a number of extra biblical references yeah, to right. to Jesus, yes, but they're not at the, like the personal level of a Peter. I saw him before he went to the grave. I saw him after his resurrection. That kind of thing. Okay. Now I, we could really could we spend another hour on this issue, but it's this is it's how you look at the person and work of Jesus. That's the touchstone. I was listening to Swindoll this morning when I was leaving my early morning Bible study and headed to my next appointment. But anyway, Swindoll said, I, 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 it, was, it was a bit of a surprise. He was, uh, when he was still in seminary, he worked with Campus Crusade, uh, which is now called Crew. But anyway, and they would do a lot of surveys on college campuses. The Dallas, Met, Fort Worth Metroplex has a lot of schools around it. And so uh, he, he said we would always administer a little questionnaire just to touch with people and start a conversation. And I don't know if that would work today, but it worked back in the 70s, apparently pretty well. 
And he said, one of the questions we always ask was, to you, who is Jesus of Nazareth? And he was, he was surprised because he said they compiled them all over a several-year period there in the 70s. And 87% of the people who responded on a college campus said he's the son of God. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I don't know if you, well, today I don't know if you could do a survey like that on a college campus and get people to even answer, but assuming you could, you know, I don't know. I think 87% would be a high percentage to, today. I don't know. But, of course, the next question would be, is that something you heard people talk about, or is that really what you believe, you know, type of question? We don't know the answer. But he said that surprised him, and it absolutely shocked me, but he was sharing that going into a sermon, but uh, his main sermon topic. But it is that question, and usually um, when I do, I like... Uh, a guy by the name of Bill Fay, but I like his method of evangelism in this postmodern world. It's just to ask people questions. And I, I usually, uh, I just, you know, get a conversation started and say, I'm just really curious, because I find out who you are and what you do. And I just say, I'm just curious. Who, to you, who's Jesus? And usually people will have a response to that at some level, and then the next question is just, you know, if you're open, would you mind if I tell you who Jesus is to me? And then, you know, then it kind of depends on how that goes. But it's just, it's asking permission of people today. That's kind of important in this postmodern, post-Christian era. And a lot of times people say, nah, I don't really want to talk about it. Okay, let's talk about ball scores or something like that. But you're just, you're trying to, you're just probing. And, and as Faye says, if people don't want to talk about it, they're not ready. The Holy Spirit, don't worry about it. Don't feel guilty about it. Just move on and talk about the weather. Yeah, that's the... The tool I use is trade all the salesmen in their company. Ah, good. And when I said Christ Community, we, we use that at the end of... Uh, good. After EE, we, we start using that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the EE questions are really good. They're still very good questions, yeah, but I'm not, as, I'm, not as, yeah, I'm not as positive. I did EE training. I'm certified in that. Yeah. But I, I'm not as optimistic about using the EE questions like I was back in the 70s when I trained. Well, moving on. The second one, in, in terms of the precept. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. I, I want to talk about that. But first of all, their sensuality. That's a very, um, I don't know if all of your translations have that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's pretty typical. That I didn't check them all. But it's, it's translating a, a Greek word. That does not necessarily relate exclusive to sexual immorality. It can mean that, but it's it's like a lack of self-control, a lack of self-restraint, an abandonment to doing whatever you want to do kind of sentiment. So, I mean, sensuality, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's an okay trend, but it's, it's a little broader than just sexual issues. It's just kind of a lack of self-control and a lack of self-restraint, a lack of boundaries, kind of how I like to put it sometimes. And so you, you, you just kind of, you, you're, you're living on impulse and doing kind of whatever you want to do. And he says, look at this, because remember, this is heresy. This is people coming from within the church who are not genuine disciples of Jesus, 
because of what they do, it will cause the way of truth to be blasphemed. <clears throat> Isn't that true? Because the culture will say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. If that's what this leads to, I don't want anything to do with it. I might as well not stay, become a Christian, because they're not any different than everybody else. And so Peter's really nailing something here. I just finished reading John Wigger's new book on the PTL scandal of the late 80s. Do, do any of you, I'm old, so maybe, do any of you remember the Jim Baker scandal? PTL is a very famous televangelist and built that massive Heritage USA in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I, I was struck by that. And then the reason I was, well, and in one sense of providence, because all the stuff that Graham, you know, with his passing and the focus on him, and then I just finished reading this book. What a contrast. What a contrast between those two men. I mean, uh, P.T. on Jim Becker, they had no, I think I told you this last week, Graham in 1948 put together that Modesto Manifesto of how they were going to run the BGEA when it was formed. Didn't I tell you about that? I don't think you did. Okay. All right, let me tell you about it. Well, when Graham was forming the Billy Graham Evangelistic <laughs> Association in 1948, he pulled the board and the leaders together at Modesto, California, and they spent, I think it was almost a week, but they spent a number of days investigating this question. Why have so many ministries and ministry leaders failed? And they came up with four reasons. Reason number one was a... A, a lack of integrity in handling financial matters. Reason number two, the issues of sexual immorality. And that's a broad concept, the issues of sexual immorality among the ministry leaders. Number three, uh, inaccurate reporting of the ministry's data. And if you're an evangelist, it's number of conversions and all that stuff. And number, third, number four was uh, not promoting unity but promoting divisions within the Christian church. And so the Modesto Manifesto in 1948 had four parts to it. And I don't remember the order, but these were all the parts. Part number one of the manifesto was, <clears throat> we, will, we will always do a public audit annually and make that audit available to everyone who wants to see it. Number two, we, we will be very, and very circumspect and very disciplined in how we deal with members of the opposite sex. For example, we will never, in the leadership, we will never be alone with a woman unless our wives or another staff member is with us. That was an example of what they meant by that. Number three, uh, we, they hired an, an outside firm to do all the counts, the numerical counts of their evangelistic meetings. And then number four, Graham would intentionally promote issues of unity among the Christian uh, community, larger, broad Christian community, instead of trying to sow discord and division. You know, honestly, when I, I read that, it's in Grant Wacker's biography of Graham. But when I read that, I thought that's why Billy Graham has always, always been known, by even people who don't give a hoot about Christianity as a man of integrity. Because you, can't find, you can find nothing of scandalous in his ministry. Oh, he made some unwise decisions. He made some unwise decisions when Nixon was president. And he, he publicly apologized for that, yeah, I'm sure you know. But Graham, Graham is an epitome of integrity in how to do something to the glory of God. He decided beforehand, this is what I wanted it to be, 
and then just meticulously enforce that year after year after year. And where, as I read that uh, Wigger's book on the PTL scan, that's it. Jim Baker was the exact opposite. No public audits, no public availability of any of their financials, no accurate counting of, of the things they were doing. He would outright lie about the results of a campaign or something. And um, uh, again, without uh, dumping on him, but he was a very immoral man and yet gave the appearance of being a very moral man, and he wasn't. And so, you know, the one thing history tells us, as well as the Bible, you're only going to be able to live a lie so long. It's going to come crashing. Or as my mother used to tell me, Jimmy, be sure your sins will find you out. She's the only one who can call me Jimmy. So don't start it. Did you see uh, Sunday's paper had an article about him? I think now he's preaching Doomsday End of Time. He's near, it's right around the corner. He is. He lives not far from Branson, is where his ministry is now in Missouri. Yeah, yeah he's hitched on to his, his business, too, uh, is selling foods and preparations just, and everything. Yeah, yeah. Lock yourself down in the cellar and wait for the apocalypse. Ender. It's just interesting to see that. Contrast with with the culture at large, with what's going on in Hollywood and journalism and things like that. About um, you know many true, some probably not, but incidents when yeah. a man was alone with a woman. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, it was mentioned at my church on on Sunday mm. about, and I thought of you because how you talked to us about mm. have a plan, be strategic about uh, how you're living and these decisions that Absolutely. you're making. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so just the, the, yeah, the integrity he had in regards to that was so just opposite of what is accepted but has blown up yeah. in the culture. Now. Yeah. And it, some of it may be exact, but a lot of it is true. You know? Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it, it's yeah. just, it's, oh, it's a math. But it's just there's absolutely no standards whatsoever in how you deal with members of the opposite sex or, or anything like that. I had a, a gal in our church, uh, She'd been emailing me some questions, and she said, because we have a thing, Ask Dr. Eckman thing in our church. And, and so uh, then she said in the, about the third or fourth email, I, I would really like to meet with you. I have a lot of questions. And I just gave my standard response. I never meet with a member of the opposite sex alone. I'd be happy to meet with you, but my wife will come along. I hope that's okay. And she said, oh, well, sure, that's great, but I've never, ever had a minister say that to me. <laughs> really? Because <laughs> so, she's lived back east, she's lived in Colorado. And I, I was just struck me, I, that sounded self-elevating. I didn't want it to sound self-elevating. I, what, I, what I meant by that is it is really not very wise for a pastor or any leader, in my judgment anyway, to meet with a woman alone. I don't think that's wise. Now, you know, here, this is a glass room. So, I mean, if you're in a business and, you know, you're me, that, that's a different. I'm talking about in a restaurant or for a cup of coffee or in closed-door situations. That's not wise. Number one, because of the, you give the appearance of evil or people can't. Or number two, you're a man. And in case you don't know that, you can be tempted by a member of the opposite sex. There's an interesting sitcom series that's just starting called Living Biblically. Really? Yes. Really? What, what channel is that one? It's 
one of the major channels. Really? Yeah, and it's, um, I, I think it's already premiered. I did not watch it, but I'm, I'm, it's going to be an interesting... Oh my goodness, I did not show know about show. that. Really? It's going to be, uh, I'm prejudging, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it was probably Yeah, I'm, I can hardly believe that that isn't a pun, going to mock and make fun, but that'll be interesting. I did not hear that. Rob, did you have your hand up? Yeah, yeah I, I did. Uh, I, I've got, I like to use these old translations, and these are ASB very close to the King James. And they actually use the word lasciviousness. Mm, sure. And it is There's an old word. Term, <laughs> yeah. Just sexual. Not just, yeah. And I think a lot of people don't perceive it that way, and yeah. maybe that's why it's falling out of use. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I don't think I've ever heard anybody use lascivious or lasciviousness in a sentence in 27 years. My grandmother used to like that word. So that's that's really true. The other part of that same verse is that, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, what's up is down, what down is up. And to me, that appears, it just hits me between the eyes for the... Mm. The second half of that verse that says yeah. that the truth will fall out of favor. Then there's another common phrase in today's society that the truth is offensive. And it is. Or they just stand Yeah, I mean, it is. It, 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 it is. And, uh, well, anyway, another bunny trail. I think well, I won't go down that bunny trail, so I'm stopping the bunny trail. Number three, in terms of the precepts, is, and it's really verse three. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Now, that's how the ESV translates that. So the vice is greed. I don't think, I mean, that's a great translation. That's exactly what it means. But, you know, it's seeking material gain. But notice, because of their greed, what will they do? They'll exploit you. Now, that's a translation. But what does exploit mean? I mean, take advantage of, manipulate, exploit with false words. Trumped up numbers. What Baker did in the reason he went to jail, one of the things Baker did was he would sell these, like, timeshare things. But you're buying, you're buying a share of the Heritage Hotel. There are about five of them. And if you, if you give $1,000 or more, you'll have... Three not four days and three nights every year free, and he sold so many of those when people started to, to cash them in. There weren't enough places for them to say that's fraud, that's exploitation, in the name of Christ. And so the, what Peter is saying, they're greed. So it's what what's their real motivation? Why are they why are they subtly and secretly teaching something destructive? They're tickling your ears so they can exploit for their own personal material end. And I mean, that, that, is, that is almost universally been the characteristic of false teaching. Almost universal. That's why I like these three, because they really do, they're just a commonality throughout history. Whether you're in the ancient world or in the 21st century, there's, there's a commonality to, to false ministries and false teachings and heretical. Uh, and, and it's those three things. Why is Peter, why is Peter sharing all this? I mean, obviously at one level it's not hard, but I mean, why? Why, 
share this? Why alert the early church to this? One, one he's aware of it, mm. and number two, he doesn't have long to live. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. He's protective of them. And he's protecting them. He wants to be the shepherd to protect them. And to protect is to alert and warn. Look for these three things. Look for these three things. Well, in fact, Peter got caught in, in some false teaching and chastised by Paul. He was. That's right. That's right. He, he fell into that. So despite what he knew was right. So he's acutely aware of it. So for you and me, for you and me today in 2018... How do we apply teaching like this? What should we do with it? You should be personally on high alert, I think. Okay, personally, pardon? What was the question? Uh, Here, 2018, what should we do with truth like this? He's alerted us. He's warned us. I, I just shared, and you can historically verify it if you take the time, but almost all false movements, false teachings, heretical movements, these have been their three characteristics. Discernment avoid. Okay, discern and avoid. I mean, discern. This is not original with me, but you know the most, the most important thing for you and me is to make sure we know truth, because truth exposes error. So if you're not well taught and you don't know truth, you're going to be, you're going to be a, a, an easy victim. And this is the early church. This is only 30 years after Jesus went back to the Father. So, you know, they, they didn't have the resources you and I have. And they had, they had good teachers and so on, but there, there wasn't a lot of depth. There was growing depth, but there wasn't a lot of depth. And so it was, it was often, that's why there was so much error in those early decades. It's easy for people that are not well taught to be drawn into error. Awana, a, a program for young kids. Yes. Uh, one of the uh, stalwarts, one of their pillars was uh, proved workmen not ashamed, mm-hmm. rightly dividing the word of God. And so these the children would study mm-hmm. the word. And memorize the word. And memorize the word and put it in their hearts. Mm-hmm. So, yep, yep. And that's what we need. Well, it is. I mean, that's, it, it's so important for us to really have, and I, I'm assuming that's why you guys come to this every, every Wednesday at lunch, is... It's, it's, I, I'm trying to do the best I possibly can, and it's often in, in some in-depth there, to g- give you guys everything that I can possibly give you in, in these areas. Because that's, I love to do that. That's, I, it's my passion. I've spent decades studying. But I, I want men and women, but I want men to know the truth. <laughs> because I think it changes you. Uh, and it's just so important. And what else then? I mean, some one of you said the word. I forget. One of you said the word discerning. Okay, Fred said discerning. How would that apply to to not only things about Jesus yet? Who you understand about the person of Jesus? What do you understand about the work of Jesus? But what what would discernment look like? For example, in the greed, they seek to exploit you with false words. Repeat the question. How what would being discerning look like with the third one? You know, in the greed, they seek to exploit you with their false words. Exploit. Huh? What would you want to... I, now, I'm going to get into an area that maybe is a delicate for some of you, but assuming that you all give to certain ministries and organizations, I'm sure, at least to your church, 
Is it important to you to have some understanding of how well they're handling your money? Is it important to you? I mean, if it's a ministry you've never heard of, the very first thing I do if it's a ministry, I like what I hear, but I want to find out. I want to find out what their administrative costs are. For every dollar they take in, how much do they write off for administrative costs? For example, I don't go to Goodwill. I don't donate to Goodwill. I go to Salvation Army. Mm. They, some very important articles were published about them not too long ago. I mean, that tells you something about administrative work because it's important you want to be a good steward of every dollar you give and so if you read of a ministry that's taking 80 percent administrative costs for every dollar it's given i'm just i'm laying out facts for you to be good stewards because that's that is way too high it should be somewhere around 20 25 percent even that in some years it's getting high but, I mean, that's just, you can find that out. They, they, if they don't tell you that, or they don't make that available on a website or something, I'd, I'd start asking some questions, and if they don't answer them, then I wouldn't give. I, Peggy and I have not given to or stopped giving to certain organizations and ministries where their administrative overhead is so high. That's not good stewardship for our money. I mean, I'm not wealthy by any stretch, but, I mean, every dollar I give, I want to try to maximize it to the, to the kingdom, for the kingdom's sake. And if they're taking 75% administrative cost, whew, that means for every dollar I give, they're taking 75 cents. That just seems a little high. Now, I'm saying all that. I'm just trying to, this is part of, for you and me, this is to be a good proactive application of stewards of what he's teaching here. It really matters. And so he's, he's saying I am laying out the facts. I'm warning you. Now it's up to you to do what you want with this truth. Then Peter, just the next paragraph, starting in the next verse, um, verse 3a, this second part of verse 3, is even if you're not as discerning as you should be, someone is. Who is it? God. God will hold them accountable. And so that's what Peter does. And this is a long, <laughs> this is a long section. It goes on through verse 10. But what, what Peter, and it's really interesting how he does this. I mean, good night. He, he goes all the way back into the Old Testament, draws a whole bunch of examples out of the Old Testament. But he wants, he wants the early church to know, and, and therefore he wants us to know, that God is going to hold them accountable. And so he says in verse 3b, the second half of verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. A funny way to put that. What does he mean by that? This long ago, back, go back to Eden? Well, in, in a way. I mean, there's this... There's this historical precedent how how God handles all this stuff, but he 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 just he helps us to understand God doesn't miss any of this, and he uses two very strong words: condemnation 
I, and this is how the ESV translate, but it's probably going to be pretty similar in all your condemnation and destruction. <laughs> They're really strong words. They're not neutral words. They're not, you know, puffy words. They are strong, strong words. Condemnation is, is a word that is associated in the New with eternal judgment. And isn't this justified because they know what they're doing? I think so. I think so. And it's, I mean, there's that accountability. They know it's, it's willful, it's intentional. This isn't, I didn't know that. You know, genuinely. Ignorant. No, no, no. It's, as, as we wove those three together, it's very intentional in their part they're doing so what does he do now he peter he gives us a series of proofs for this how do i know this peter is saying how do i know that condemnation and destruction are there at how do i know that and so most of your translation probably the first word of verse four is four Mm -hmm. you could translate that because He's now going to give a series of reasons why he can make this very bold, audacious claim. Condemnation and destruction are therein. Four, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and the word for hell there is a very unusual word. ESV should probably just translate. This is to just transliterate this into English. The word that's used there is satars, which is only used, it's, it's a very rare word, is only used as an abode for demonic being. You mean you can't read it? You sound like my daughter. My daughter is very condemning of my writing. Tartarus. T-A-R. T-A-R-U-S. Tartarus. Ain't demonic. <laughs> For demonic beings. Yeah. But you will go really lifting me up and how I write. I tell, no, I'm just kidding. My writing is terrible. I know it is. It's awful. And committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. What judgment? The great white throne and eternal lake of fire judgment of Revelation 20. So now, what is Peter talking about here? Um, there's, there's a lot of discussion about this among expositors and so on because we're not exactly sure. There's a variety of different... Um, uh, ideas here, but let's talk about a couple of them, one or two of them. Um, when Satan rebelled against God, it's recorded for us in Isaiah fourteen twelve and following, when Satan rebelled against God, if we understand Revelation 12 correctly, and some people disagree, but I think for the most part, pretty well agreed, a third of the angels joined Satan's rebellion. So another way of saying that, God creates the angels, and a third of the angels, those special, angel means messenger, those special beings rebelled against God. And that's the origin of the demonic hosts, okay? Now, of those rebellious angels, those demonic beings, 
if Genesis 6 is what he's referring to here, a group of them incarnated other human beings with the intent of perverting the redemptive line back in Genesis 6 of Seth. Again, I'm laying out details. But that, that was destructive. That, that, was, that was destructive. And that is one of the reasons why God sent the flood. And God only preserved, you know this from Genesis 6 through 9, Noah and his family, and then repopulated the earth with Noah's uh, sons and as they spread out. And most expositors think that's what this is referring to. That was, that was such a monstrously evil act because what Satan was trying to do was destroy the redemptive line, which is through Seth. Remember when Cain killed Abel and Seth? And again, that, it's assuming you remember some of that we studied, but it's all of that. And that was, that was, a, that was a very, it was subtle, but it was very destructive. And so God, that's the way it's presented then in Genesis 6, uh, that that was such an evil, destructive act that God had to judge the earth and start over again, so to speak, with Noah and his family. And that is probably what he's referring to here. And there was a special place ESV, I, I don't, I love the ESV user, but I wish they wouldn't have done that. Cast them into hell. The, the word there is really Tartarus. It's this special, special place where they're locked up. Not done tell us how many, just they're locked up. So if he did, he goes on then, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, that's why we think he's probably referring to that Genesis 6 passage. A herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So, first example. How do we know condemnation and destruction is the end of that which is breeding false teaching and sensuality and greed and exploitation? Example number one, what did God do to those angels, who, those demonic beings who rebelled against God and tried to, tried to pervert and destroy the redemptive line. He locked them up in a special place. And for that reason, because of the results of their act, he didn't spare the whole world. He only preserved Noah. He had to judge the entire world and start over again. That's how severe that was. Are you with me? That's example number one he uses. Example number two, verse six. By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So next example is Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's really interesting. It's really interesting because in Genesis 19, you don't necessarily reach that conclusion. But Peter's saying one of the reasons God did this is this an example. This is to be a deterrent. Because God will hold the human race accountable. It seems there's a maybe I'm not reading this correctly. Please, no, it no, seems no, like no. there might be a little difference. The angels 
sort of represent the first heresy up here, which is mm-hmm. to destroy mm-hmm. um, the, the, the role of Christ. The, the redemptive line that would right. ultimately produce. <clears throat> the um, Sodom and Gomorrah seems to be more on the sensual. That's so, the, I mean, is, that could, that's good. That could be, absolutely. That could be exactly what he's doing here. Exactly. That's a good comment. He's trying to make a parallel between their false teaching and how God held each category. Kind of, that's a very good comment. Assuming it isn't the sin of hospitality, but the sexual sin, which is, I think, pretty obvious what it is. That's a good comment, Jim. Okay? This is good. If we can finish this, the Lord will be very pleased. And number seven, if he rescued Lot, now that's referring to uh, out of that judgment, he did rescue Lot. Um, greatly distressed by the central conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man, Lot, lived among them day after day, he was tormenting the righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. My goodness, that's that's interesting, isn't it? That's an interesting comment about Lot. Do you understand what he's saying there? Because he makes it very, very clear, and I think this is where Jim is correct, by their central conduct in the middle of verse 8 of the wicked. That certainly points to the primary sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, the righteous man. Who's the righteous man? It's Lot. Despite all of his shortcomings and all of his fallacies, he said he was the only one, the only one who lived among them. And he says, tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And you, you do get that when you read that. He was torn by that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then the Lord knows, I'm continuing, in the end of medieval verse, into verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. My goodness. <laughs> so you have you have these examples, but then this applicational teaching. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials or temptations. That word can be translated either one. Why is he telling um why is he drawing that conclusion? Because from the angelic Things that happened in Genesis 6, and then Noah the righteous, and Sodom and Gomorrah, then Lot the righteous. Why is he drawing this conclusion then? Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He's telling, telling the, the new church that if they stray from the, the gospel teaching that they know, that they're, they're prone to mm. this fate. Mm. But if they stay with the gospel teaching, God will be there. It's, it's, it's a promise. Mm. And to rescue them, to keep them. Because what was the church already at Peter's time and because of what they would face in the decades to come? Terribly difficult trial. Terribly difficult persecution. <clears throat> Does that mean they're not going to be any persecutions? But to rescue the godly from trials, then why were there martyrs? Why were there martyrs? 
to rescue the godly from trials where they're martyrs. So what does that mean, to rescue the godly from trials if they're martyrs? He didn't rescue them, right? Amen. Let's close. Let's pray. Who did? Okay, okay, okay. Now, you're, Rob, your hand, your hand. You're the one who had your hand up. Go ahead. I'm thinking that the rescue, that the, the trials that God is rescuing us from are not of this earth. Okay, what do you mean by that? Not of this earth. Lord of the Rings type stuff. Well, I don't know. Chronicle of Narnia stuff. stuff. Yeah. I'm being facetious. I'm trying to break the tension. <laughs> um, God, I, I think I think he's rescuing us from eternal punishment. Okay, okay. Because God's rescuing of the godly can be temporal. I mean, within time, I mean now, but certainly from eternal perspective, he will rescue us. In other words, that that application to rescue the godly from trials, you have to, when you first read that, you think, wait a minute. In this early church, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of martyrs. He didn't rescue them. Well, yes, he did. He took them home. You know, my favorite, I'm sure you've heard this guy, my favorite martyr in the very early church was Polycarp. Isn't that a great name? Poly- Can you imagine naming a baby Polycarp? You know? <laughs> but he was Bishop of Smyrna, and his, his church recorded, he was in his 80s, his church recorded his trial and recorded his execution. And, that, and it became one of, it circulated very widely. If you want to read the whole thing in Lightfoot's edited book called The Apostolic Fathers. There's a, a, there is that account by Polycarp's church of his trial and execution. And that was, that, was, that was the thing, that it was amazing. God did rescue him by taking him home. He sta- he, he's in his 80s, and this Roman military governor trying to force him to give up his faith as, a, as an example to all of these people in Smyrna. And he says... Listen, I have served the light, my, the Lord, all of my life. What makes you think I'm going to give up that now? I'm going to burn you in the fire. And this is supposedly what he said. Bring it on. <laughs> now, he's speaking Greek, so I don't know what the Greek for that was. But, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if I could do that. But he's, he's saying... I've served the Lord for over 80 years. I'm not going to stop doing it now just because you're threatening to take my life. Because listen, if I die in that fire that they're stoking right there, I'm instantly going to be with Jesus. But there's a fire awaits you if you reject Jesus. That's what he's supposed to have said to that military government. So this rescuing, you've got to understand that from the perspective of eternity. Not necessarily that he's going to rescue you and you're never going to experience the difficulties. It, body language and shuffling of papers means I'm done. Okay. How do you spell Polycarp? Just like it sounds, Polycarp. It is. It's really. That's. A, it's a. It's really a good read. It's not very long, and probably if you even online, you know, re, find it.
find it because it's, it's, it's readily available. Lord, we've talked about a number of things from your word today, and um, I wanted to make sure that we got that with clarity the precepts of false heretical teaching. There's a commonality about that throughout all of history. And I, I'm, I'm trusting and I believe that came across very clearly from the word of God as we've talked about it. But also the, also the important teaching for all of us that you're holding false teachers like that accountable. And if they don't change their ways, condemnation and destruction is their end. And Peter's making that very clear with the examples that he offers. So Lord, um, I'm, I'm so delighted that men show up in these kinds of numbers each Wednesday over lunch to hear the truth proclaimed, to want to be closer to you and the understanding of who you are, what you're doing in this world, and how each one of us plays a part in that. Thank you for Jesus, for his willingness to come and go to the cross and die a substitutionary death for us, be resurrected in power, and that we can see our lives transformed when we embrace that truth by faith. Thank you that the tomb is not empty, that he is alive, and that we uh, are waiting for his return for us. Until then, we want to be faithful men who represent you well. To that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.